Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy news for conservatives today. Jim, today is Jimmy Carter's 96th birthday. No president has ever lived longer. No president has ever lived longer after leaving office, which thankfully he did. That was a very rough four years for America. Uh, He has been out of office for nearly 40 years. He was elected 44 years ago. And Joe Biden was elected to the Senate four years before that. So uh, (laughs) that's just a little bit of perspective today as Jimmy Carter turns 96. Jimmy Carter's presidency, or as I like to call it, the middle of Joe Biden's career. (laughs) All right, let's get to the good martini. Uh, Hopefully we'll have a similar good martini tomorrow when the September jobs report comes out. But here is what we know so far about uh, jobless claims over the past week. In the week ending September 26th, the advance figure for seasonally adjusted initial claims was 837,000, a decrease of 36,000 from the previous week's revised level. Uh, The advance number for seasonally adjusted insured employment during the week ending September 19th was 11,767,000, a decrease of 980,000 from the previous week's revised level. So, Jim, we've seen big jumps here over the past few months, ever since the uh, horrific downturn we saw in April. Uh, We want to see it going. We don't know what we'll see tomorrow yet, but uh, these are good signs. It is. And kind of to summarize everything Greg said, it's pretty good. It's not great. (laughs) It's not where we want to be. What you're going to see probably over the last month of the election is these are these two competing narratives. Uh, last night, by the or a couple nights ago in the debate, Joe Biden said Trump inherited a terrific economy. Eh, not really. <laughs> if it was really that terrific, there was a much better chance that uh, Hillary Clinton would have won. I think what's uh, you and I talked throughout the Obama years, saying that we were in a slow recovery, a sluggish one. Job creation was kind of getting there. The market started coming back. Cumulatively, from like 2010 to about 2016, yeah, the economy was growing at about 2% a year. You know, it was a a long, plodding recovery, shall we say. Trump gets into office. You might remember one of the first things that happened right after Election Day was the market just took off like a rocket. Why is that? Well, the markets knew that whatever was going to happen in the Trump presidency, they weren't going to have Medicare for all shoved down their throat. They weren't going to have, you know, blowing up health insurance and creating this whole new giant, uh, uh, complication for every business in America. They were not going to have massive new regulations, massive new tax hikes. They, you know, the markets knew that for at least the four years coming ahead, there was predictability, there was stability. Well, maybe maybe the Trump era wasn't quite as stable as he necessarily thought it was, but right up until the beginning of this year, the economy was doing pretty darn well under Trump, and that was going to be the centerpiece of his re-election campaign. We all expected that Trump was going to say some version of the Clinton 92 slogan of it's the economy, stupid, and making the argument that whatever you thought of the president's personality, you could like what he was doing for your 401k, for your savings, for the maybe you got a raise. Uh, and perhaps really significantly, wages were starting to go up for the lowest income workers. And that was a big deal. Um, and also low, extremely low unemployment rates, uh, particularly minority communities and women. That was a, these are all good signs. These are the sorts of things that get a president reelected. Then the pandemic comes along and we have to shut down our economy. And, you know, depending on your measuring stick, by one measure, like one third of the country was effectively shut down and, you know, unemployment skyrocketed to levels of the Great Depression. 
bit by bit, we started undoing the lockdowns. We started undoing this, and the economy has been coming back. They had a couple, you know, the the immediate jumps were huge, and people wondered, are we going to get? They said the V-shaped economy, the U-shaped economy, and then there was I think it was the K-shaped economy, which everyone's like, is this like some complicated driving turn where you you have to make it, you have to turn around, but there's only a limited amount of space. Basically, the K-shaped economy means certain people do well, certain people don't do well. Tomorrow, we get the, the final jobs report before Election Day. Election Day is November 3rd. That's a Tuesday. A couple of days later, we'll get the jobs report for October. So this is it. This is going to set the narrative. This is going to be what people are going to be arguing about the state of the economy. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but the last you know five or six of them have been pretty good. We're not out of the hole from the pandemic, but we're making nice progress. Um, if that's good, I expect you'll see the president, you know, just hammering this home in his final ads and his final message. And it's going to be, hey, remember how good things were going January, February before the, the pandemic came along? I can get us back there again. Biden can't do this. Biden is going to raise your taxes. Biden's going to botch the economy. You know, we'll see what happens. This is a good indicator. It's not always that these kind of, you know, uh, payroll figures the day before or a couple of days before necessarily tell you exactly how the unemployment rate's going to go the next day. But I think tomorrow's going to be a big day. And I think it might be, um, if it doesn't go well, it'll be one more complication for a president who faces, you know, a tough climb to ensure that he gets a second term. Yeah. And what are the two things Joe Biden promised to do in the debate? Number one, raise taxes on corporations and quote unquote, the rich. And then also the guy who's totally not pushing the Green New Deal is going to spend billions and billions on weatherproofing buildings to be in uh, compliance with climate change regulations that are coming down the pike. So uh, I'm sure those will be fantastic uh, ideas if he gets elected. Yeah. You, know, you realize we're going to get some version of I didn't pass the Green Deal. I passed a green deal. <laughs> you know, we, we took out two or three provisions and it was totally different. You know? I remember the last guy who ran as a moderate in the general campaign after not running as one in the primary. Uh, we got eight years of uh, not middle of the road stuff uh, from Barack Obama and Joe Biden, as a matter of fact. So I was about to say, I'm trying to remember what you're thinking of Bill Clinton or of Barack Obama. <laughs> That's definitely where their instincts are. I mean, Bill Clinton got more towards the middle because he had to once he lost control of Congress. But his uh, middle-of-the-road centrist Democrat, uh, DLC-type Democrat, sure didn't look like that in his first two years when he uh, raised taxes and did a whole other things because he had the votes in Congress to do it. Anyway, let's talk about our bad martini here, Jim. And this guy might need some professional help. He's probably needed it for a while. This is Andrew Cuomo. He, unfortunately, is still the governor of New York. Well, we've uh, battered him from stem to stern, and rightly so, for not only sticking with the nursing home mandate, that the nursing homes had to take COVID-positive patients back into their facilities, couldn't test them. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he's uh, ducked, dodged, denied everything in terms of um, investigations in terms of his nursing home policy, which he quietly removed from uh, the website and quietly reversed. But uh, he was being interviewed by the Finger Lakes Daily newspaper, and the issue came up again. And Andrew Cuomo is absolutely living in fantasy land. Here's what he said about the nursing home COVID deaths. And we never needed nursing home beds because we always had hospital beds. So it just never happened in New York where we needed to say to a nursing home, we need you to take this person even though they're COVID positive. It never happened. We had extra beds. We had extra beds at Javits. We had extra beds at 
uh, emergency hospitals that we put up all across the state. So it just never happened that we needed a nursing home to take a COVID positive person. It never happened. Jim, this is such garbage on multiple fronts. First of all, the allegation is not that they uh, forced nursing homes to turn into hospitals. The allegation is that instead of taking COVID-positive patients who were recovering but still COVID-positive, take them to the Javits Center or the USS Comfort that was that was in New York City at the time. Instead, they were forced back into nursing homes, which could not refuse them, could not test them. And Andrew Cuomo is uh, being partly slick and partly just absolutely in denial here. Now, what's weird is this happens yesterday, right, this interview. Last night, Ted Cruz is doing Chris Cuomo's program on CNN. I don't quite know why. But (laughs) thankfully, the, the appearance on the Chris Cuomo show turned into a really fascinating, and I think eye-opening interview of Chris Cuomo by Ted Cruz, which is not really the way it's supposed to work. But at some point, Ted Cruz basically starts hammering Chris Cuomo on the decisions Andrew Cuomo made. And Chris Cuomo could have said, you know, that's a question that's better directed to my brother. I'll ask him next time he has him on, you know, that. but Chris Cuomo had no problem stepping into the role of a spokesman for his brother and offering this full-throated defense. And part of Chris Cuomo's defense was that Andrew Cuomo has acknowledged what got what mistakes were made and taken steps to correct them. As we just saw in that audio from the Finger Lakes, no, he didn't. <laughs> That's not, you know, like, so first of all, the two brothers aren't community, but I think this also is a, a further illustration that when the governor of New York, first of all, he's assumed authoritarian powers, unlike anything else in, in recent memory, uh, as it was, it was because of the quarantine. This is the moment when accountability to the public is more necessary than ever. And the governor is doing interviews only with his brother on CNN. It's the only national news that he's doing. And he's doing this kind of goofy waka waka. Hey, let's get out the giant swabs. Let's make fun of each other's noses. Let's make fun. You know, let's do this kind of Smothers Brothers. You know, mom always liked you best routine. None of that was good for it. And CNN, it started out cute in the beginning. I think, you know, they the initial bickering during the interview was kind of funny. Um, but then it turned into a shtick and it turned into something that I think was clearly being done to take Andrew Cuomo off the hook of having to do other television interviews and to face tougher questions. Because there are a lot of legitimate questions and a lot of legitimate criticisms of Andrew Cuomo's policy decisions. And you knew you weren't going to get it that bad as long as his brother was the one asking the questions. Um, this is a new level, though, Greg. This this inter- interview at the Finger Lakes, it's a flat-out lie. And he lies and he lies and he lies a third time. And by the way, dear friends in the mainstream media, I assume you disagree with me on on how well the government can do, can do its job. Fine. Okay. You have more faith in the federal bureaucracy, state government bureaucracy, and local government bureaucracy to do their jobs than I do. Fine, we don't have to agree on that. But when you don't hold Andrew Cuomo's feet to the fire, this is the sort of thing that happens because Andrew Cuomo knows he can get away with it. He knows that the headline in the New York Times tomorrow is not gonna be, Andrew Cuomo lies his butt off, Cuomo's policies killed seniors, wants to pretend it didn't happen. If it happens to the New York Post, Cuomo's not going to mind. New York Post will do it, but, you know, Cuomo's like, those readers aren't going to vote for me anyway. Cuomo basically has this, building this mythology, complete with its own merchandising and posters. And because, you know, this could be pushed back by the New York Times or the New York Daily News 
or the Albany Times Union. Actually, I think local paper is actually a little bit tougher. But even more, CNN could do a big segment on this. I don't think that's going to happen. MSNBC, in an effort to distinguish itself from CNN, could say, oh, CNN has this nepotism problem. We at MSNBC are the, are the network that's not afraid to hold somebody's feet to the fire and hold somebody accountable for bad decisions, even if they're a Democrat. We are not DNC TV, but they choose not to do that. Is Fox News going to do a segment on this? I bet you they will, but it's not going to have any impact because Fox News viewers are already not voting for Andrew Cuomo. So that's the state of things, Greg. And it's a really depressing one because the cause of good government that so many Democrats say they believe in is undermined by this refusal to confront the failures directly and this effort to just kind of go along with whatever narrative the Democratic office holder prefers to believe in. No, I think that's exactly right. And it also comes back to two things we've said along the way here over the course of this pandemic. Number one, uh, the media narrative that blue state governors are doing everything right and that red state governors are the reckless ones. So Cuomo, since that's where the uh, the outbreak was the most intense, he, of course, it has to be the hero of the narrative, particularly since there's a Republican president and not a Democratic one. And secondly, we uh, mentioned in passing a few weeks back that the media is already trying to set the field for 2024. That's why they're so hard on Ron DeSantis. That's why they're so hard on Greg Abbott. And that's another reason why they love uh, Andrew Cuomo. Because uh, if Biden wins, it's highly unlikely he'll finish the four years, much less run again. Maybe Harris gets a clean field if, if they win and, and, and Biden can't run again, but maybe not. And so they're trying to make every Democrat who's a prominent figure look great and every uh, potentially significant national figure on, on the right look like a, a reckless loser. And rant. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our... There's some sort of chart in which listeners can tell how rantier we get as election day. <laughs> yes, exactly. And which particular issues tend to set us off the most. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next. All right, let's talk about uh, the debate again, but this time rule changes might be on the way. Uh, This is the CBS version of the story, but everybody's reporting on this. Uh, In a statement following the presidential debate in Cleveland, Ohio, the first of three scheduled in the run-up to the general election, the Commission on Presidential Debates said the event, quote, made clear that additional structure should be added to the format of the remaining debates to ensure a more orderly discussion of the issues. An informed source told CBS News Nora O'Donnell the commission will spend the next 48 hours determining new guidelines and rules for the second debate. The organization is working on all possible solutions, but the source said that, quote, we are going to be making changes. At the top of the list is controlling the two candidates' microphones and their ability to interrupt one another and the moderator. The campaigns will be informed of the rules, but the source said the rules will not be subject to negotiation, which I'm sure will make everyone happy in this highly charged atmosphere with less than five weeks to go, Jim. And so uh, you got a lot of folks obviously talking about the interrupting on Tuesday night, a lot of folks on the right pointing out how much Biden did it, but it might not have gotten noticed as much. Um, There's also, you know, ideas that do you just clip the other person's mic during those two minutes where they're supposed to get the floor all to themselves and maybe during the questions. 
but I can I, I can see points where somebody's going to start screaming, my mic's not on. Why isn't my mic on? I'm trying to make a point. So uh, if this wasn't highly charged enough, rule changes mid-debate schedule, while understandable, are going to cause problems here. I don't really know what options they have because if you do this let's say you know you give the moderator the ability to cut the microphone of trump when it's not his turn he will argue well they're trying to silence me quite literally they're trying to silence him right um every candidate has had frustration with moderators and every every candidate has felt like wait a second wait a second you're cutting me off but you let him finish his point and you know everybody this is a lot of these things are in the eye of the beholder if you empower the moderators more, you're going to get more candidates complaining and you're going to probably get more viewers at home believing that the moderator is abusing the power, right? Because the whole point of this is to let the kids to hear the candidates. Now, you know, I suppose the best thing you can do is probably you know, tell both of them, like, these are the rules. If you don't honor the rules, we will stop the debate. And you kind of, you know, keep things go. You see how things go for the first 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And, I, I, you know, one of the interesting discussions of the last day or two has been like, what would have happened if Chris Wallace had said, to hell with this. If you guys are going to talk over each other, I'm not going to do this. Ripped off the lapel microphone, throw it down and just storm off the stage. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe the interesting argument is maybe we shouldn't have a moderator. Maybe we should just let Trump and Biden yell at each other for 90 minutes. You know, um, I don't know how things are going to shake out. Next one is the town hall one, which is always like, you know, you know, Mr. President, um, I haven't gotten a raise in a while. So what will your policies do to make sure that I get a raise at my job? You know, <laughs> and, you know, the president's job is to emote and remember the person's name and to talk about how they remembered their first job and how hard it is. And, you know. I'm, I'm not looking forward to it, but my sneaking suspicion is, is that giving the moderator the ability to cut off the microphone of a candidate is only going to uh, increase the number of arguments about whether the moderator was fair or biased or uh, gave one candidate more time than the other. The only way this works is if everybody agrees to the rules, and Trump has already demonstrated, at least in this first one, he was not willing to follow the rules. I don't think he's likely to change his mind for the next one. Then you're into the category of like, could you get the Dr. Evil button with like, you know, trap doors or uh, lava or sharks with lasers on them or something <laughs> like that underneath them if they go past their time or something? I, don't know. I, I suppose you could do the two minute and then your microphone is off type thing. But what happens if you're in the middle of a sentence? What happens if you're in the middle of, a, of an important point you want to make? You know, there's, there's supposed to be a little bit of discretion about this. And there's always kind of this irritation in past debates we've seen, particularly the primary debates where somebody's laying out, you know, so I have a three-part plan. Part one is this, part two is this, and part three, ding! And all of a sudden they can't say anything else. So <laughs> I think maybe, you know, if look, the, people have been arguing about whether we need to shake up the format of the debates for a long time. I like the, uh, I like, I, I'm glad the, the, the uh, audience was relatively quiet for the last one. I think the playing for applause lines is kind of stupid. It turns into like competing convention speeches. I think the more interesting thing is just have the two candidates sit down and talk to each other and see what they say. And my sneaking suspicion is, is that you'd actually learn a lot more without someone saying, and now we've spent enough time on this issue. It's time to move on to that other issue. Well, it's a little easier to tamp down the audience reaction when there's only about five or 10 people in the audience. <laughs> so that helps a little bit. But uh, Jim, I, I, as I said, I'm leery about the idea of clipping mics. But if there's any moderator who's going to do it effectively, Steve Scully of C-SPAN, who has to handle the people calling in on the Republican, <laughs> Democratic and Independent line and talking about how, you know, Joe Biden's a lizard person or Donald Trump's, uh, you know, under the thumb of Putin or something like that. Uh, you know, uh, if anybody can cut them off effectively, it's probably Steve Scully. 
It is. He, he is an icon of Washington, probably the most even-tempered guy. I love how he's always like, the comment that he's a lizard person is really fascinating. We're moving on to Dubuque. <laughs> what do you have? You know, but the absolute, that one time, this is going back to, let's say, 1998, 1999. I was a congressional quarterly, and we're watching C-SPAN all days long when the, when the House is not in session. And there was some break, and the only time I've ever seen Steve Scully unable to maintain his... Uh, placid, calm face in the face of the nuttiest things callers ever say <laughs> was the caller who argued that C-SPAN was part of the plot by the millionaires and billionaires to take over the world and that Scully was making millions sitting there uh, working for the shadow conspiracy or whoever the heck it was or something. But, his, <laughs> but he, he finally let out a little like, oh, you think I'm a millionaire, huh? And uh, it was just, it was delightful to see. It was kind of like watching the Sphinx suddenly... Uh, uh, crack of it. So, uh, you know, just, just a well done uh, selection. He probably can handle it well. But uh, on the other hand, if Wallace could get really frustrated by the end of the evening, I don't know if um, this is going to test Scully's patience like nothing else. <laughs> I was saying when as soon as I saw him as the moderator, I thought the whole debate should be unscreened C-SPAN callers, but maybe just the last half hour, just calling in on the different lines, that would really make for entertaining things. I'm guessing there'll be a little bit uh, less cutting off because I don't think the candidates will actually interrupt the uh, average folks, quote unquote, who are a- asking the questions. But uh, after that, it could be a free for all. I'd seen one or two people make this suggestion. For the last couple of months, we've seen um, somebody, one of the great jokes is that in 2020, the Pentagon announced that they actually had seen unidentified flying objects, and that wasn't even big news. Um, <laughs> now, I should specify, they don't mean flying saucers with little green men. They just mean that, you know, Air Force, Navy, other pilots have encountered things in the sky that they don't know what they are. Could be somebody's experimental aircraft, could be some other, you know, we, we don't know what it is. But if you put the first question on, this, this topic of, you know, what are, you know, what, what can you tell us? What do you know? What do you think should be done in relation to the fact that U.S. military aircraft have encountered things that they can't identify? And, you know, because it's a question that's completely unexpected. It's legitimate. It's not, you know, are there aliens in Area 51? And just see how, just throw something completely unexpected to the two candidates and see how they react. My guess is they'd laugh it off. But I think you might have something interesting, you know, they're all going to give some variation of the, um, the, the Whitney Houston speech. I believe that children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. You know, they, they, most of this stuff is going to be canned, rehearsed, you know, ready-made stuff. Throw some completely different topic at them and just see how they go. So maybe, the, maybe the viewers at home would learn something new about these two candidates. I think if Biden knew anything about aliens, he would probably blabbed it back when he was vice president. But uh, Right? I mean, the best evidence that we don't have the Roswell crash UFO in Area 51 is that Trump would have tweeted about it by now. <laughs> yeah, neither one of these guys probably would have been able to keep it under the lid. Speaking of lids, Biden's already called one today. No surprise. Uh, Jim, uh, great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lounge podcast. We're always extremely grateful for a kind review and a five-star rating. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.
Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.